Welcome to Evidence-Based Radio. As always, you can find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher or via the website evidencebasederrata.com. Oh, so it's been kind of a kind of a bad week weather-wise, and I have to admit I struggled tonight uh, or getting to tonight's show. Uh, I was reading a lot of things, and a lot of what I was seeing were stories about global warming and other ways in which humans are really just destroying the planet. And um, it really sometimes becomes hard to try and stay positive and not be dragged down by all of the bad news out there. And so um, longtime listeners will know that as much as I absolutely believe in global warming and am uh, very, very aware of it and very interested in combating it, I do uh, find it hard to talk about, and I think that happens for a lot of people, and um, I'm not sure quite what to do with that. I'm not going to solve that tonight, unfortunately. Um, Tonight, we are going to pull back into our familiar and comfortable topics, but I think that at some point, um, I am going to try as as someone who is in that very position that I know a lot of other people are, where I want to talk about it. I want to be able to help people understand why it's so important, but also get very overwhelmed by thinking about it. And um, actually, at one point earlier in the week, just started crying at the thought of like drowning polar bears. Um, And so... Um, yeah, it's a lot. And um, obviously, we've been feeling it very viscerally this last week with all of the heat waves that are absolutely tied to global warming. Last year, tied with, um, I think, 2014 for the hottest uh, year on the planet since we've started doing uh, temperatures. And so, yeah, it is definitely real. It is definitely happening. And um, we have to get better about talking about it so that we can get be better about really making people understand that we need to make changes. And um, just one thing that I always like to remind people is that as much as it's important to do your little part, um, to recycle and not to waste energy and not to waste water and things like that, um, the vast majority of what is going on is caused by uh, giant corporations and by governments that either uh, don't have the wherewithal to care um, or simply don't have the resources to uh, do something different. And so obviously this is a multifaceted problem because there are issues of accessibility and of, um, you know, rich versus poor countries and things like that. It's much easier for Americans to get their um, energy needs from things like uh, wind and solar and other means than it is by people in developing countries. And so we have to sort of balance that, those uh, ebbs and flows of power. But I think it's very important 
that overall we really need to find a way to deal with this um, because we are getting to ever increasingly bad tipping points. And uh, so again, we're not going to talk about it very much tonight. I'm going to have one story that touches on it, um, but it's a hopeful story. So let's let's concentrate on that for tonight. But first, we're going to start with one of our most familiar and, uh, as I said, comfortable topics, which is birds. We always love talking about birds around here. Um, I'm very much into birds, and uh, I love sharing uh, stories about birds, birds and cephalopods. If you're new, uh, if this is the first time you're listening, if you like birds and you like cephalopods, uh, this is the place to be. So please uh, keep listening. <laughs> okay, so we're going to start by talking about a weird behavior that birds have that we don't really understand very well. And so uh, recently, a photographer named Tony Austin was walking through a British Columbian nature reserve when he stumbled upon a murder of crows that lighted down uh, about 40 feet in front of him. And being a photographer, he obviously got out his camera or already had it out and he began to snap pictures. And so what he saw was one of the birds began to roll around and cover itself in black ants. You don't often see crows that close. They were all strutting around, says Austin to NPR's Bill Chappelle. Only the one was taking this dirt bath, which I thought was quite interesting. The others were walking around looking at it. They were certainly quite interested in what was going on, but they didn't seem alarmed. And so more than 200 bird species take part in so-called anting behavior, which generally involves fanning out their wings on the ground to pick up insects, usually ants. And again, nobody really knows why they do this for sure. And so educated hypotheses have included that they might be soothing the bird's skin during molting or to encourage the ants to release formic acid, which may help keep pests away. Now, a study in the autumn 2015 issue of Northwestern Naturalist looked at American and Northwestern crow anting behavior. And so they actually noted two different forms of anting and their possible explanations. Anting occurs in two main forms. One, active anting, where a bird preens its plumage with live ants grasped in the bill. And two, passive anting, where a bird settles on an an aggregation of ants and allows the ants to crawl through the plumage. Anting is an anointing activity used by many birds to apply scent-laden materials, usually chemicals of arthropods, to themselves and considered a maintenance behavior whose function is to either cleanse plumage of ectoparasites and accumulated lipids or to relieve skin irritation during feather replacement, they wrote in their study. Now, so that was pretty much that's the the main reasons why people think they might be doing it. However, it turns out several studies have actually looked at that formic acid release from ants as a potential fungicide. And it's actually not led to the conclusion that this would be the reason for anting because, because feathers treated by ants didn't actually have significantly different bacterial levels than those of control animals. And so it's a little bit hard to understand exactly what's going on. It might be that it is something about skin irritation. And so it might be that 
having the ants crawling on the skin in some way helps the the birds feel better with their skin. Maybe the acid has some sort of interaction that we don't yet understand. Um, but it turns out that this is just one of those things that we might see out in the wild. I've never seen it. I watch birds a lot, but I don't think I have very many ant colonies around my uh, bird feeder. So that's probably one thing. But whatever the reason, if you ever see a bird covered in ants, uh, probably not anything to fear as long as the bird seems to be alive and kicking. Uh, they're apparently getting something out of it, even if we're not clear what that something is. Um, and so this is just an aside. I read this small little snippet and I thought that, um, it was interesting. It's not uh, a big thing, but there's another odd relationship with ants that has been recently described. Apparently the giant plumos anemone, which looks a little bit like underwater cauliflowers, flourishes along the U.S. Pacific coast. And so they mainly dine on what you would expect, zooplankton and tiny marine invertebrates, uh, different kinds of uh, crab larvae and things like that. But a new study in the journal Environmental DNA shows that when given the chance, they will also eat ants. <laughs> and so it turns out that 12 anemones near docks off the coast of Washington state had a diet that was made up of around 10% ants, which seems pretty weird when you think about an animal that lives in the ocean to be eating ants. <laughs> and so it turns out that the anemones were collected during the mating season of pale-legged field ants, which swarmed the docks in August. And so it's probable that some unlucky ants are blown away into the water where they are trapped and eaten by the giant anemones. So uh, yeah, apparently ants are just uh, doing a lot of weird things that we wouldn't necessarily associate them with. Um, and you may have also seen recently, there's a video, and obviously this isn't a visual medium, so um, there is a really interesting video, and I've seen this before, but uh, a new one's come up, of fire ants. And so fire ants are very terrifying. Um, <laughs> I always think of the episode of MacGyver. Uh, I know I'm dating myself by uh, referencing that, but there's an episode of MacGyver with uh, fire ants. Um and so fire ants are a little terrifying and they will do this thing where they will create a ball of ants and it will allow them to float on water and not drown. And um, so, yeah, it's pretty crazy. Uh, ants are very, very interesting and they do all sorts of amazing things. I always say um, that if aliens came to Earth uh, they wouldn't be interested in humans. They would be interested in ants because ants are definitely uh, the clear rulers of this uh, planet of ours. Uh, we think that we're in charge, but ants are really doing everything. Um, and they are definitely the grand rulers when it comes right down to it. Uh, they are literally everywhere. Um and so, yeah, ants are definitely uh, 
more interesting, I think, to uh, any kind of aliens that might pop in. Uh, you know, if they were smart, they'd be interested in the ants and not us. Um, but again, uh, no aliens to be seen. Uh, that was another thing recently. Uh, they had the disclosure document came out about some of those videos. And um, I think I already mentioned that I had watched some videos uh, debunking them previously. Um, and so I wasn't really surprised when it came out that, you know, those videos show artifacting or birds or things like that. And that some of them are probably, uh, you know, advanced um, advanced airplanes and other kinds of drones and things like that that aren't ours. Uh, so there is a subset of things that are probably from the Chinese and other um, people who are developing those weapon systems, but still nothing is, for the most part, has any kind of idea that it might be aliens. And so once again, aliens are pretty much ruled out. Um, and so, yeah, definitely don't think that there are aliens out there at the moment. Um, which again is unfortunate. I would be interested in aliens, though I know there's always the idea that if they were uh, sophisticated enough to get here, they would be sophisticated enough to basically come here and wipe us out immediately. Um, I am, I don't really have a strong opinion on the idea of whether or not they would be uh, hostile or peaceful. Um, I think that it would really be a crapshoot. Um, if you based them on humans, then they'd probably be hostile. Uh, <laughs> let's be perfectly frank. So, um, yeah. Anyways, let's let's circle back <laughs> uh, and talk about more birds. And so uh, this time we're going to talk about a rather pretty bird you've probably never heard of. Um, it's called the hoopoe, and it's native to Eurasia and Africa. And so male hoopoes have an interesting evolutionary behavior. And so a team of researchers from the University Universidad de Granada and the Estación Experimental de Zonas Aridas, both in Spain, found that the birds provide more nourishment to females who paint their eggs well. So we'll talk about what that is in a second. And so in the new paper in the journal Proceedings of the Royal Society B, the researchers described their observations of hoopoes in the wild. Now, we know that these zebra-striped birds have long mating seasons from February to July. And so the males compete for females basically by the normal sort of bird uh, ways, by singing uh, songs to them and fighting with competitors. And so once a pair has mated, the female lays her eggs in a nest. And so while the female roosts, the male forages and brings her back food, which is her only source of sustenance while she broods. And so the birds have several interesting features. The eggs when first laid are a dark blue, but the female will paint them using her beak and her uh, breast feathers to pull an oily substance from her Europageal or preen gland located beneath the base of her tail and painting the outer shell until it is a light gray. 
the oil, which the authors want you to know has a, quote, very strong cheese-like odor, (laughs) fills the pores in the shell and prevents disease. It turns out that male hoopos understand this feature to some extent and thus reward females who do the best job of painting their eggs with more food. And so the researchers watched 61 nests and once females had painted their eggs, the researchers switched some in and out based on hue. They then monitored the amount of food the males brought to females. After the eggs hatched, they found that the males gave slightly more food to females who had been sitting on better painted eggs. In addition, there is another thing that is interesting about these birds. The hatchlings themselves have an unusual defense as well. If a predator approaches, the chicks will point their butts upward and shoot excrement in the air. (laughs) So that is a thing. (laughs) That is a thing about a bird that you'd probably never heard of before. And now you know two odd things about it. Um, (laughs) I've been saving this one for a while, actually. I kept trying to find a place to insert it um, because I totally did want to talk about it at some point. And today was the day that I was like, oh, I've had this weird bird story for a while now. (laughs) Okay, so we're going to move on now and talk about birds and magic tricks because sometimes science is way more fun than you'd think it could be. Um, I think it's lovely to think of the fact that someone has the job of trying to do magic tricks for birds and that that's a totally legit thing that they were doing that has a totally legit research uh, hypothesis behind it. And so uh, obviously magic tricks aren't just for fun. They actually tell us a fair bit about human nature and the way that our cognition works. And so to understand a magic trick, you have to have a specific perspective. To fall for a trick, you have to be persuaded to perceive some things as important and ignore other things that are actually important at that moment. So obviously, the whole thing about magic tricks is about sleight of hand and about about persuading you to not look at what is going on. And so... um, Finding out if other animals experience magic tricks in the same way that we do can tell us if they perceive the world similarly to us. And so if they are able to, you know, fall for that sort of misdirection, then it tells us something. And so it turns out, unsurprisingly, that most people start with primates. And primates tend to get magic tricks. Um, I was watching a video the other day of, I think it was an orangutan, um, and it was watching, it was either orangutan or a chimp, and it was watching someone do a very simple magic trick, and it, you know, totally got it and started laughing. Um, And so it turns out that, you know, they are pretty similar to us, unsurprisingly. But it turns out that birds aren't quite the same. And in fact, they aren't fooled in the same ways that we are. And so in this specific case, the birds were Eurasian jays. And they are members of the corvid family, which we know are generally uh, pretty smart. And so they definitely are known for being smarter than the average bird. 
And jays in particular are known for caching food such as acorns. And so they will often engage in elaborate deceptions to prevent rivals from finding their caches. So researchers learned three different magic tricks. And of course, they used worms rather than coins or cards so that the birds would actually be interested. They learned the French drop, in which the audience is supposed to believe the performer has moved an object to a new hand when it's retained in the original hand. The palm-to-palm transfer, which is similar with the transfer supposedly performed. And a third trick that relies on hand motions to obscure the fact that the object really has moved from one hand to the other. They got good enough at the tricks to fool humans most of the time. Out of 160 tests for each trick, humans chose the wrong hand 115 times for the palm transfer, 120 times for the French drop, and 140 times for the fast pass. Slowing the process down allowed almost all the humans to pick the correct hand. The birds, on the other hand, had nothing like such consistent results. So for the palm-to-palm transfer, the birds actually did worse on the con- did the worst on the control, where the worm actually was transferred, a bit better when the magic trick was performed as expected, and best when it was performed slowly. For the French drop, it didn't matter. The birds almost always chose correctly. For the fast pass, they chose correctly every time when the trick was done correctly, but they were confused by the control where the worm did not change hands. Now, this one is important because it shows that despite the study only using six birds, it shows that they almost certainly hadn't memorized where the food was supposed to be, but were making an informed choice based on the circumstances. Now, despite the muddy results, the conclusion can be drawn pretty well conclusively that birds perceive things differently than humans. They more often than not traced the sleight of hand and realized what had happened in the supposed trick. Now, part of this might be down to the physical differences in the bird's perception. The position of their eyes is different, and so only a small part of their vision receives input from both eyes. The difference in depth perception may explain some of the variation in outcomes. The other issue is that magic tricks involve subtle movements of the hand, which humans are more attuned to than the birds. And finally, it may be that because the jays are already known for being deceivers, they're better able to perceive deception. But of course, we have to be careful to say that we can't really know what's in the bird's mind, and we may never truly know completely but it does show that there's something different going on than in the mind of humans as they perceive magic tricks. And so that is really interesting. And so obviously we can do more work and try and find some other things that will show us more about how they may perceive the world around them. And so, yeah, I think we should show them more and different kinds of magic tricks. Um, It just sounds like a lot of fun. Um, And I love the idea. And obviously this is, you have to be careful not to anthropomorphize too much. Um, But I love the idea that the birds are like, no, you totally moved it or you totally didn't move it because they also understand deception. And so they're already, their minds are already tuned to that. And so they're able to pick up 
on the magic trick because they are doing the same thing in their own minds, in their own uh, everyday lives. I think that's really interesting. Okay, so we're going to talk about, I think, one more bird story. And this is the bittersweet one. Um, and so it may or may not ultimately have a happy ending. But again, I thought it was a good foray into talking about the broad strokes of the issues we face in an increasingly warm and polluted world. So earlier this year, a group of black-footed albatrosses were flown in economy plus seating on a commercial airliner across the Pacific from the Midway Atoll, northwest of Hawaii, to the remote Guadalupe Island in Mexico. One of these albatrosses, named Snowflake, took off from Guadalupe on June 16th, just three days before World Albatross Day. Snowflake represents the hope of a binational project between the U.S. and Mexico to give these animals a fighting chance. On Midway, they were destined to drown, says Julio Hernandez Montoya, a conservation biologist with the nonprofit Island Ecology and Conservation Group, or GECI, who helped lead the effort. Three projects have already moved albatrosses within the United States and Japan, but this is the first transfer between nations. One of the things that's really crucially wonderful is that you're putting more eggs in more baskets, says Axel Morinschlager of the Calgary Zoo, who chairs the Translocation Specialist Group at the International Union for Conservation of Nature. He calls the project potentially groundbreaking and notes it's exactly the type of approach that we need on a global level. The birds, which can weigh over six and a half pounds when mature, nest on low-lying sandy beaches that are vulnerable to sea level rise and flooding. During the 2011 tsunami, 30,000 nests were lost on three atolls, according to Eric Vanderwerf, a bird biologist with the nonprofit Pacific Rim Conservation. He actually teamed up with colleagues from GECI to move eggs and chicks to Guadalupe, a reserve some 161 miles off Mexico's Baja California Peninsula, where these kinds of birds once nested. The Mexican nonprofit has been working for the last 20 years to restore the ecosystem of the island by eradicating invasive species. They began by removing nearly 50,000 goats and then eliminating nearly 1,500 feral cats. Their removal, quote, completely changed the island from a moonscape to a lush, verdant, recovering island, said Brad Kite, a seabird biologist with the American Bird Conservancy who was not involved in the project. Previous efforts by Hernandez Montoya's team to attract the birds to nest on the island using decoys and recorded courtship sounds had failed. And so at a meeting in 2016 in Oahu, scientists from the two groups came up with the idea of moving eggs and chicks before they'd had a chance to imprint on their Hawaiian location and hope that they'd imprint instead on Guadalupe. Vanderwerf's team had already successfully 
relocated both black-footed and Laysan albatross eggs and chicks from Midway to Oahu, a higher island in the Hawaiian chain. After years of planning and despite the pandemic, the team flew 21 black-footed albatross eggs to the island in January and set them up with foster parents, experienced Laysan albatross pairs whose eggs had either not been fertilized or had broken and who were already nesting there. And so the island already had an established uh, population of Laysan albatrosses, which are very similar to the black-footed. And so 18 of those 21 eggs hatched in February. The new parents did well fostering the adopted chicks, but again, there's no guarantee that they'll learn behaviors specific to their species, such as courtship behaviors. However, it seems that it's pretty lucky and they actually think that it's innate. But in order to give them a hands up, the team again planted decoys and played recorded black-footed albatross vocalizations to try and, uh, you know, get them a little bit further along in understanding their own uh, unique behaviors. And so after that, the team brought 12 one-month-old chicks back with them in February. Nine made it safely to the island where they were hand-reared and again exposed to decoys and vocalizations. So far, three of those chicks have fledged. And previous research suggests that 93% of hand-reared albatross chicks fledged, though breeding data has yet to be collected. It will be five years before Snowflake and her cohort will be ready to return to potentially mate. It will be an important moment when those birds come back, Vanderwerf said but the team is already looking to bring 80 more eggs to the island in the next few years. And if all goes well, they might try to move more species, such as the black-vented shearwater and leeches, and leeches storm petrel back to the island, which was once a seabird paradise before the introduction of invasive species. And so let us hope that someday the island will once again be a paradise for these beautiful birds. Okay. Uh, we are going to take a break now and do some show promos and some PSAs. And when we come back, we're going to talk about uh, glass wing butterflies. So do stay tuned for that in just a moment. Hi, I'm Charlie. I fight fires and I save lives. My name's Renee. I'm a cardiologist. I save lives. My name's Anthony. I'm an EMT. I save lives. You don't have to be a professional to save a life. Firefighters, doctors, and others save lives. You can too. Don't wait. To learn more about the warning signs and how you can help prevent suicide, visit save.org. In a crisis, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. Join hosts Jacqueline and Mari on Alternative Lately every Sunday from 9 to 11 p.m. on Valley Free Radio, WXOJ, LP, Northampton. Every week, we bring you the latest in alternative pop rock music. We'll highlight underappreciated talent and undiscovered artists, bands, and collectives you didn't know you needed. Be sure to follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Alternative Lately. If you're looking for new current music, start here. It's time to ask Mr. Green from the Sierra Club. Steve in Lakewood, Colorado wants to know, what's the proper way to dispose of used household batteries? 
Well, Steve, alkaline batteries, the most widely used type, contain zinc, which can harm certain aquatic species. The federal regulators, unlike some states, do not consider them dangerous enough to require special treatment. Check out earth911.org to see if anyone collects alkaline batteries in your area. If not, look up Battery Solutions or the Big Green Box, who will recycle them for a fee. Rechargeable batteries, like those found in billions of cell phones, should definitely be recycled because they contain dangerous heavy metals like cadmium and lithium. However, thousands of stores nationwide take them back. Visit calltorecycle.org to find one near you. Finally, honor the mantra, reduce, reuse, and recycle. Fewer gadgets is a sure cure for disposal angst. Ask Mr. Green and learn a lot more online at sierraclubradio.org. Sassy! Today's episode, Bobcat in the Cave. Oh, nuts! There's a bobcat in this cave! Save us, Sassy! You will, but first you like to stress the importance of cat adoption? Over 5 million cats go into animal shelters every year and they need to be adopted? Help us, Sassy! Why bother? We'll just get into more trouble tomorrow? Sassy is brought to you by the Ad Council and the shelterpetproject.org. Remember, adopt. You don't let your kids play in the toilet. That's what it's like when pet owners don't pick up pet waste. Irrigation and stormwater can carry this pollutant to storm drains and retention areas where our children play. Do the right thing. For yourself and your community, pick up after your pet. Bag it and properly dispose of it in the trash. Remember, only rain in the storm drain. Brought to you by Stormwater Outreach for regional municipalities. Visit storm at www.azstorm.org. The Lily Library is filled with adventure and wonder for kids and adults of all ages. Lily Library in downtown Florence lends books and movies to everyone. They offer free parking, free Wi-Fi, and two-hour sessions on Internet-connected computers. They also offer extensive programs for children, including story hours, clubs, and activities for teens, as well as adult programs. The library is open Tuesday and Thursday evenings, Saturdays and Sundays. Find out more at lilylibrary.org. Sundays from 4 to 6. Please join Adam on the air for Metal Education. Each week we'll delve into a different area of the genre, take requests, and generally cause mayhem, and enjoy our Sunday school. That's WXOJ FM Metal Education with Adam on the air every Sunday. See you there. Hey, kids, let mom help with your science project. This new mom wants her kids' science project to thrive. Too bad she hasn't cracked a science book since 1985. A metathesis reaction? Compounds, mixtures, and elements. Even this baking soda volcano is too big of an experiment. Whoa. Now she's completely forgotten the periodic table. Now she's burning a hole through the kitchen table. Burning with science. But her kids' love for the mom is truly transparent. Proof you don't have to be perfect to be the perfect parent. Don't tell Dad. You don't have to be perfect to be a perfect parent. Thousands of siblings in foster care will take you just as you are. For more information on how you can adopt, visit AdoptUSKids.org. A public service announcement from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Adopt US Kids, and the Ad Council. 
Spring and summer are prime time for ticks that can spread Lyme disease and other infections. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention would like to remind you to wear bug repellent when outdoors, shower as soon as possible after coming indoors, and check your whole body for ticks every day. If you've been bitten by a tick and develop fever, rash, or fatigue, seek medical care. To learn more, visit www.cdc.gov slash Lyme. Okay, we are back. And um, I have to say, I really love that um, science ad council uh, about foster parents. Um, I'm sorry if you've heard it too many times, um, but it's one of my favorites. <laughs> okay, so we are, as I promised, going to move on now and talk about butterflies. I don't talk about butterflies very much. And so new research has uncovered the secret to glass wing butterflies. Now, you may have seen pictures of glass wing butterflies. They don't really live around here. Uh, they are found in the tropical rainforests. And so they are really, really interesting in that they have wings that are in part transparent. And I mean seriously transparent, as if they weren't even there, it seems. And so the only reason you can kind of tell they're there is because there are non-transparent bits around the edges usually. And so Erin Pomerantz, an integrative biologist at the University of California, Berkeley, studied glasswing butterflies in the Panamanian rainforest. And so the rare butterflies are like ghosts in the rainforest, says Nipom Patel, Pomerantz's PhD advisor. And the two have solved the mystery of how the wings can be actually transparent. And so uh, these particular butterflies are baseball-sized and live throughout Central and South America. And they're one of hundreds of butterfly species with transparent wings, which help them evade predators. Now, unlike dragonflies, which have wings that glimmer in the sunlight, and if you look at dragonfly wings, you can see the sort of uh, you know, they look more like bits of clear stained glass. Uh, glass wings actually have wings which look completely transparent. And so Patel, who is now the director of the Marine Biological Laboratory in Woods Hole, um, actually normally studies arthropod evolution. And so normally he's a sea guy, <laughs> uh, but he has had a lifelong interest in these masters of camouflage. And apparently uh, when he was growing up, he collected them. And so he's got a huge collection of them and it's definitely a passion project for him. And so he asked a group of graduate students to take microscopic wings, uh, microscopic pictures of the wings of a dozen or so species of transparent butterflies. And so it turns out that different butterflies have found different ways to become transparent. Butterfly wings can consist butterfly wings consist of a thin membrane of chitin, which is typically covered in tiny scales that resemble interlocking tiles. And so um, sometimes we talk about butterfly wings when we talk about uh, structural pigment. So if you think of the butterflies that have those really intense blue colors, that is. Uh, structural pigmenting by the way that those interlocking tiles are placed. And so some of these species have found ways to move light around the scales. Some produce fewer of them 
Some turn them vertically, and some have gotten rid of the scales altogether. And so the research published in the Journal of Experimental Biology explains how the butterflies have also solved the issue of reflecting light. Looking at the wings under an electron microscope, they found that many of the scales were converted to bristles, which allow light to pass through them more easily. In addition, between the bristles were tiny mounds, or nanopillars, coated in a layer of wax. These waxy nanopillars help reduce glare, according to Pomerantz. Glare, which happens when light hits a surface and bounces off it in the same angle, is reduced by roughing up the surface of the wings and causing the light to scatter at different angles and thus diffusing the reflection. Because they're so small, they kind of act like little bitty speed bumps, Pomerantz says. In addition, the, waxing, the waxy coating slows down the light, passing through the wings because it's denser than air. The reduction in speed softens the impact of the light, further reducing glare. What's interesting about this, though, is that the wax actually weakens the chitin that makes up the wings. Why forgo those amazing advantages that you get with the chitin to replace it with this wax, Sankey Johnson, a biologist at Duke University who was not involved in the study, asks. I bet there's more to the story, but that they're going to find out. And so, indeed, the next step for the research is to figure out how these structures evolved from non-transparent ancestors using genomics to identify key genes. And as is often the case, in addition, though, again, it is really about the research for research's sake, we may be able to harness this knowledge for new anti-reflective materials, which could more efficiently funnel light into solar panels and create cheaper anti-glare lenses for cameras or glasses. It's just fascinating to know how nature solves really interesting problems like this, Patel said. You can pay extra for glasses that have an anti-reflective coating on them, but of course, essentially, butterflies figured out figured that out maybe tens of millions of years ago. And so that is very cool. All right, so we are going to leave the creatures of the air and we are going to move on to another story. And so I want to talk about uh, one of our other favorite uh, topics around here, especially in the last uh you know, year or so, Mars. And so NASA has solved a bit of a mystery, uh, though unfortunately solving that part of the mystery leads to more questions. And so methane, an organic molecule that is common on Earth and mostly produced by living organisms, think cow farts, has been detected on Mars by ground-based rovers. Uh, curiosity, to be uh, precise. And the thing, though, is that we're not sure where it comes from. And for a bit, we actually weren't sure if it was even there at all. It turns out that the math, that the methane really is there, but it depends on the time of day you're looking for it. NASA's Curiosity rover has picked up methane traces numerous times while exploring the planet. And so the emissions might be a byproduct of some geological processes, but it might also be an indication of the presence of some form of microbial life. However, the ESA or European Space Agency's orbiters 
we're not detecting any methane in the higher atmosphere. And this is weird because even at tiny concentrations, the methane should reach the upper atmosphere and be able to be detected by the orbiter's sensors, which are that sensitive. They should be able to get it even if there's only a tiny amount. When the European team announced that it saw no methane, I was definitely shocked, says planetary scientist Chris Webster from NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory. In order to figure out the discrepancy, the team went back and scoured their data. So we looked at correlations with the pointing of the rover, the ground, the crushing of rocks, the wheel degradation, you name it, Webster explains. I cannot overstate the effort the team has put into looking at every little detail to make sure those measurements are correct. And they are. And so it turns out that the methane is most abundant at night when Curiosity's power intensive instruments are most likely to be running, and when the atmosphere is more still, which means the methane does not rise and dilute into the atmosphere like it would during the heat of the day. It turns out that the ESA's orbiters need sunlight to work. John E. Moores, another member of Curiosity's science team, predicted that methane should effectively go down to zero during the day, and our two daytime measurements confirmed that, explained planetary scientist Paul Mahaffey from NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center. So that's one way of putting to bed this big discrepancy. And again, while this, op while this solves one problem, it opens up more questions, including why the methane isn't building up in the atmosphere. It should last for at least 300 years before being degraded by solar radiation. And there should be other places where methane is seeping up because Gale Crater, where Curiosity is, isn't a particularly special geological area. So the researchers believe that something must be destroying or sequestering all the methane. And that's why it isn't being detected in the upper atmosphere. The team is now looking at whether dust or an abundance of oxygen might be the reason for the anomalous readings. And so that is really interesting. Uh, <laughs> we know there's methane there. We don't know why it is there and we don't know where it's going. <laughs> and, um, you know, that is some pretty good uh, pure science right there. <laughs> and um, yeah, so on the other side of the neighborhood, new research suggests that Venus's clouds are unfortunately too dry and acidic for life to survive. And so this new information suggests that even if those uh, previous phosphine molecules that were detected last year could, in point, could possibly be a sign of life, it isn't from Venus. And so researchers looked at measurements from probes that recently flew through the atmosphere above Venus and acquired, or through the atmosphere of Venus, and acquired data about temperature, humidity, and pressure in the thick sulfuric acid clouds which make up the planet's run, runaway greenhouse effect. This allowed them to calculate what's called the water activity. The water vapor pressure inside the individual molecules in the clouds, which is a limiting factor for life on Earth. When we looked at the effective concentrations of water molecules in the clouds, we found that it was a hundred times too low for even the most resilient Earth organisms to survive, John Halloways, a microbiologist at Queen's University in Belfast, 
and lead author of the paper said in a news conference, that's an unbridgeable dis distance. Now, it's a disappointment, obviously, for those who had hoped that the phosphine readings might su suggest life living in the clouds. We know that extremophiles on Earth can handle very inhospitable areas, but we know that on Earth, the lowest measurement for water activity, which is measured between 0 and 1, is 0.585, whereas the levels in Venus's clouds is 0.004. NASA Ames astrobiologist Chris McKay, one of the co-authors of the paper, stated that the results are undeniable and won't be adjusted by next-generation missions. Our conclusion is based directly on measurements, McKay said in the briefing. It's not a model. It's not an assumption. The mission that NASA just selected to go to Venus will do the same measurements again, temperature, pressure, and they are going to come to very much the same conclusions because Venus is not changing on that type of timescale. And again, while this may be disappointing for Venus, it turns out that there's actually a layer in the clouds of Jupiter that has a water requirement that is just at the survivable threshold of 0.585. Now, of course, this doesn't mean that there's life in the clouds of Jupiter because ultraviolet radiation or lack of nutrients may preclude life from developing here. But the technique can potentially be used in the future to probe exoplanets. What excites me the most is that we can go down to the scale of water molecules for these distant planets and pinpoint their potential habitability, Halsworth said. So that is very cool. All right. So we're going to wrap up tonight with a story you may have heard of, uh, but hopefully uh, you haven't heard about it. And so this is from last week, the uh, story about Dragon Man. Um, and so as with most hominid remains, there is definitely some question about where the skull, dubbed Homo longii, discovered in northeast China, belongs on the phylogeny of hominids. Now, the skull may belong to a relative of Homo sapiens that is even closer than the Neanderthals, who had previously thought to be our closest relatives. I was surprised by the resulting phylogeny, which is a family tree analysis, linking it to Homo sapiens rather than Homo neanderthalensis. But our conclusions are based on the analysis of large amounts of data, study co-researcher Chris Stringer, a research leader at the Center for Human Evolution Research at the National History Museum in London, noted. The skull's provenance is actually quite unique. Uh, it was supposed to have been discovered by a Chinese man in 1933 in Harbin City in Heilongjiang, which is China's northernmost, northernmost province. But at the time, the area was under Japanese occupation, and so the man kept the skull from the invaders. He buried it in an abandoned well, a traditional Chinese method of concealing treasures, the researchers wrote in the study. And so uh, the skull basically remained there until 2018 when it was actually uh, dug up, when he told people about it on his deathbed. And then it was later donated to the Geoscience Museum of Heibai, uh, GEO Un University. And so researchers confirmed the claims of the discovery um, by running a series of tests. And so they basically decided that, yes, it came from this area. 
And it suggests that the skull is at least 146,000 years old, which is within the middle Pleistocene. And so the skull is quite unique. His head was huge, containing a large brain with a long, low shape and massive brow ridges over the eyes, Stringer said. His face, nose, and jaws were very broad, and he had big eyes. But his face was low in height, with delicate cheekbones, and it was tucked back under the brain case, as in a modern human. And so uh, they think the man would have been about 50 when he died. And so an analysis of the skull shows typical archaic human features, but also a mosaic combination of primitive and derived characters setting itself apart from all other previously named homo species, study co-researcher Kiang Ji, a professor of paleontology at Hai Bi GEO University, said in a statement. And so they looked at a suite of over 600 traits of the skull's shape and then fed this information into an algorithm. And therefore, they used, quote, a very powerful computer to build trees of relatedness to other fossils. After many millions of tree-building processes, we arrived at the most parsimonious trees, which suggests that the skull matches a few other found in China and represents a third lineage closer to H. sapiens than H. neanderthalus, is and so, in other words, H. longii shared a more common recent recent ancestor with H. sapiens. Now, this is all really interesting, um, and as with all of these finds, there are obviously people who disagree, um, and so we don't have time to talk about it all uh, tonight, um, but. Some other people obviously have suggested that it might actually be uh, a Denisovan rather than a new kind of species. And so again, uh, this is, I think, part of the ever-present idea of lumpers and splitters. And so uh, three scientists have come out with counter-arguments that suggest that the new skull indeed represents a member of ancient Denisovan rather than a new species. And so I definitely think we will have to see more. Um, but Stringer said that they actually did look at that. And so he said in the end that I think that Harbin could certainly be a Denisovan, suggested by the very large molar with splayed roots and the close phylogenetic relationship with the Giohe jawbone found from northern Tibet which could be Denisovan. But until we have a complete Denisovan genome with a complete cranium, or better still, a complete skeleton, we cannot resolve this question properly, only talk about probabilities. All right, that is all the time we have for tonight. Thank you very much and have a great week. Evidence-Based Radio is a member of the Planetside Podcast Network. To learn more, go to planetsidepodcasts.com. The theme song is Widgen by Bird Boy. Purchase the full song at smarturl.it slash birdboy.